You're listening to a Dwell Community Church production. If you'd like to check out more resources, visit dwellcc.org. So last week we started off our study in the book of Philippians and you know this is like Conrad said last week is this a letter from our friend Paul to his good friends living in the ancient Greek city of Philippi. This letter is a real letter written about 61 AD. And what Conrad talked about last week is he talked about a lot of the really unique and interesting circumstances under which Paul met these people that he's writing to, how they came to be believers in Jesus, and how a Christian community that uh, took root there, that grew uh, to be very dear friends of Paul, were supporters of his, were behind him. He had a, a especially warm relationship with them. And I think as we read through the book of Philippians, you'll see the warmth in this letter. And, you know, this is 10 years after Paul met these guys, and now he's writing from a prison cell in Rome. And like we saw last week, he was, even though he was in prison, he was unjustly accused. He had been in prison for several years by the time he wrote this letter. One of the themes that really stands out from the book of Philippians is how happy Paul is, even considering his circumstances. You know, in just four short chapters in this book, some form of the Greek word for joy appears 16 times. That's a lot, not to mention a lot of other words related to joy and contentment and happiness. And, you know, this whole, this whole, you know, since I'm mentioning happiness and joy, I think now is the time to talk about the difference between joy and happiness, because we, we have to spell this out here. How many people here know what is the difference between joy and happiness? And I'll tell you the answer. Contrary to what you might have heard from Christians, there is no difference between joy and happiness. If you look in the number one Greek lexicon and you look up the word rejoice, you know what it says? How this word is used in ancient Greek literature and in the Bible? It means to be in a state of happiness and well-being, to rejoice, to be glad. Yeah, that sounds like happiness to me. You look up the word joy and you know what it says? The experience of gladness. Yeah, that sure sounds like happiness to me as well. And yet, the way you hear Christians talk, they're always making this distinction between joy and happiness. And happiness is talked negatively about. Isn't that weird? Randy Alcorn wrote a whole book called Happiness, released it a couple years ago. And he tells this story in his chapter, Is Happiness the Same as Joy? He says, in the three years I spent researching and writing this book, I've had dozens of nearly identical conversations. Someone asks, what are you writing about? Happiness, I respond. And he says, if I'm talking to a non-believer, they're immediately interested because everyone is looking for happiness with all of their heart. Believers, he says, typically give me an odd look, as if to say, don't you usually write on spiritual themes? They often say, you said happiness. Did you mean joy? (laughs) He says, my first pastor often cited Oswald Chambers' book, My Utmost for His Highest, which is a great book. And I eagerly read that great book as a young Christian. But at the time, I didn't know enough to disagree with his statement. Statements like these, joy, he says, should not be confused with happiness. In fact, it is an insult to Jesus Christ to use the word happiness in connection with him. I certainly didn't want to insult Jesus. (laughs) So after reading this in many similar statements, I became wary of happiness, suspicious of happiness. Sounds like sin. Today, if you ask a group of Christians, so what does joy mean? Most will grope for words with only one emphatic opinion, 
Joy is definitely different than happiness. That's all I know. <laughs> Here's just a tiny sampling of this misguided thinking. He surveys the literature. A, Christian, a book on Christian ministry has a chapter called Happiness versus Joy. It says joy and happiness are very different. And another book has a chapter titled Joy versus Happiness. The author states happiness is a feeling while joy is a state of being. Another claims, joy is a di distinctly a Christian word and a Christian thing, and it is the reverse of happiness. <laughs> Here's an article called, Jesus Doesn't Want You to Be Happy. <laughs> Sounds like a real page turner. The author states, as you read through the Gospels, you'll see plenty of promises of joy, but none of happiness. And they are infinitely different things. <laughs> wow. Happiness is the reverse of joy. The two are infinitely different. Is there nothing more to joy than a state of being? Is emotion something we should reject? Or is it a gift of God? Part of being made in his likeness. Well, I hate to break this to you, but um, we're not immune to this. I've detected this sentiment even within our own fellowship. And let me tell you about it. I've even seen this in our own church. Sad, sad case. I was listening to a uh, central teaching on this very topic from about 10 years ago. And this poor, misguided, full of a teacher, he's teaching Philippians 1, and he says, now it's time to talk about the difference between joy and happiness. <laughs> happiness, he said, the fool. A pleasant feeling that comes from good circumstances, whereas joy is a confidence that comes from Jesus Christ. And God wants to give you joy, not happiness. Do you know who this poor, misguided fool was? It was me! <laughs> I am that fool! Saying God wants to give you joy, not happiness, and making a false dichotomy between these two, an unbiblical distinction. In spite of all the data, all the linguistic data, you know, here the whole world is saying, give us happiness! And I'm saying, no, God wants to give you joy instead. Give up on happiness. Why was I doing such a thing? I mean, I was young. I was foolish. I didn't know any better. I'd heard, it sounded spiritual. I'd heard other Christians say it. I'd read it in books. And yet, when I look at my own life, the day that I met Christ in a personal way, I, I had grown up in the church. Never knew the love of God in a personal way. The day that finally broke through, that is still one of the happiest days of my life. Partly because of how unhappy I was before and how I finally found the thing I'd been looking for all of my life. And that set me on the path of being able to receive even more blessings from God that made me even happier. And now when I look at my life, the, the emotion that would describe it more than any, I'd have to say is happiness. In spite of all the ups and downs and everything else, happiness is the constant thing through it all. I'm happy. I have a happy life, a happy marriage, a happy family, happy relationships. And so why the distinction? Why such foolishness? Yeah, I agree with Alcorn. He says our message shouldn't be don't seek happiness, but you'll find in Jesus the happiness you've always longed for. And we're going to see that over and over again in this book. Each week, we're, most weeks, we're going to be like, so what's Paul so happy about this time? And as we look at this week, what is he so happy about? Well, what he's happy about is this right here. Paul's happy about God's good work 
in the lives of his Philippian friends. So let's take a look at that, that work that God is doing in their lives and why Paul is so happy about it. It says in chapter 1, verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with happiness in my every prayer for you all. In view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now, Paul's like, I just keep thinking of you guys, and I'm so happy. Because I think about how grateful I am for you guys. I think about everything we've been through. I think about how you embrace the message of Christ and how much change he has brought about in your life. And you didn't you know, give him the finger like everybody else, like so many other people, but you guys have grown and God is doing a thing in your life. And I just, I just am so happy when I think back on our friendship together and everything we've been through. I feel that way about a lot of people. A lot of you guys here in this room. And Paul felt that way about these guys. And so he is just so happy about their participation. The gospel is, just means good news. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. This is the news that even, he came to bring, that even though we were separated from God, he came to offer grace. He came to offer forgiveness through his death on the cross. And then he says, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And you know, when you're talking about, you know, religion, you don't get too far before you start talking about works. And this is maybe the key distinction between Christianity and all other religions, which are invented by humans. And that's this. Other religions, you do the work for God or the gods. And if you work hard enough, then maybe the God or the gods will accept you, or maybe you'll reach the afterlife or heaven or nirvana or paradise or enlightenment, and you'll cancel out your bad deeds, and you'll, you know, have enough good works to overcome it, and you'll get rewarded for your good works, and you need to work, work, work. It's about what you do for God. Unfortunately, some people paint Christianity that way, too, in spite of what Scripture says. Christianity is different, though. In Christianity, God has done the work for you. That's the opposite, right? That would be the reverse. Instead of us doing the work for God, God, it's about what God has done for you. Jesus Christ has done it all. It is finished. And we are not saved by works. Our works can add nothing to what Christ has done. He has done it all. That's what we just studied in the book of Galatians. See verses like this. By grace you have been saved through faith. And that's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. It's something he just gives to you. It's not as a result of works so that no one may boast. Yeah, so it's not your works that are doing it. It's his work on your behalf. And that's what Paul is so excited about here. You know, nobody's excited about some duty to do this work to maybe please a God who's sitting up there with his arms folded looking down at me. But a God, a God of love who sent his son to die for me who did for me what I could not do for myself and now invites me into relationship with him, participation in his plan. Now, that's cool. And so this good work, this good work, he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. There's different facets that we see here, right here in this very verse. Really three phases of God's good work. You know, you've got the work that began at a certain point. He who began a good work in you. That's the starting point. That's the day you become a Christian. There's also an ongoing element to this. He says he will perfect it. And so this work that God has done on your behalf 
Even though on the very first day you become a Christian, you are completely accepted, completely adopted, guaranteed eternity with him, given a new identity that you need to learn and understand. It takes, it takes time for that to work its way out into your life. It's actually a lifelong process. And so that's why you see this weird tension between it's already done and it's not yet done. Like in Hebrews 10, 14, he says, by one sacrifice, Christ, God has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. You see the two uses of made there? You've been made perfect forever already, and yet you're being made holy. Holy is just a church word, but it, it means different, unique, distinct, like God. He's changing you for the good. And so he's perfecting you. He's working in your life. That's something he does. And we see an end point to this work. It says, until the day of Christ Jesus. And this is the day that Christ returns. And that is the day when he will put an end to all evil and pain and suffering in this broken world. And he's going to fix the world. And he's going to fix you. And he's going to give you a new body. And so you will be, you have a perfectly redeemed body. Just like the one that he got after he rose from the dead. And we can live in perfect harmony with each other and him on a perfect earth. A real physical place real physical bodies, but different in the sense that they're made perfect. And, you know, the Bible uses fancy theological terms for these different phases. You know, for this first one, he usually calls it justification. That's the point where God, where God, you know, begins the work in your life. There's also an ongoing one. Usually they use the word sanctification. You might see that in different passages. That's the ongoing work of God. And there's one called glorification, where you are glorified to be like Christ. And you know, this justification, this is where we're saved from the penalty of sin. We're under a death sentence. We're under the judgment of God, and then we're no longer under that judgment. We're saved from the penalty of sin. Sanctifications were saved from the power of sin. Christ says, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of things in our lives that they are ruining our lives, ruining our relationships. He wants to save us from that. He wants to change us into a different kind of person. Glorification, we're redeemed... We're saved from the presence of sin forever. We're never going to have to worry about sin or evil or any of that stuff again. That'll be a good day. You know, justification requires, it, it happens in a moment of time. It happens once, and it's instantaneous. Sanctification, well, that's an ongoing process that's going to take the rest of your life. Hope you're ready for that. Glorification happens once, instantly. The moment that Christ comes back, that's when you will be glorified. Justification requires a single act of faith or trust in God. You put your trust in Him for your eternal destiny, for your forgiveness, and He forgives you, and there's no need to keep going back again and again and again and again to ask for more forgiveness. Sanctification is many acts of faith where we slowly grow in our understanding and our belief in God's Word and our trust of Him, and He changes us as we do that. And finally, glorification requires no act of faith. You know, as long as we did the justification one, we know that we will be glorified. We don't have to worry about that. And finally, we know that justification is good because he calls it a good work. And if you look up, if you look up the Greek for good, it means good, beneficial, something better than you already had, something you're going to like. That's what good means. A lot of us are afraid God's going to do something horrible to my life, like cancel all fun and make me into this unhappy nerd. No. God is trying to give you something good. He wants the good life for you. And so justification, I mean, what could be gooder than that? 
to be saved, to be adopted by God, to be guaranteed eternity with him. That sounds awesome. You should try it if you haven't. Sanctification, that sounds good too. All the things I I'd want to stop doing that I feel powerless to stop. God wants to change me. He wants to make me happy. He wants to bring about that fruit of the Spirit we talked about a couple weeks ago in Galatians. Love and happiness and peace and gentleness and goodness and kindness and self-control. That sounds awesome. That sounds really good. Glorification. It doesn't get any gooder than that either. You know, the moment where we're transformed to be like Christ and we enter into heaven and the new world that he's made. All kinds of new adventures together in perfect relationships. That sounds good. Yeah, this is a good work that God is doing in the lives of Paul's audience. And this is the kind of promise and the kind of good work that he wants to do in your life as well. And so this refutes several lies. You know, things like, I'm so, I've ignored God for so long, he's probably given up on me. No. He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. I'm too messed up. I've messed up too badly. I can't change. Yeah, I know that that sounds like a humble thought, but it's not. It's denying the truth of God. He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus, unless you're really messed up and you can't change. No, that's not in my Bible. It's not in yours. It applies to how we view other people as well. A fatalism toward others, a negativity. That other person can't change. Nope, he who began a good work in them will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. He's not going to give up on you. He's not going to give up on them. He doesn't give up on his kids. But there are some things we need to keep in mind, like you might not see the work he's doing at first. This is a good work in you. A lot of times God has to work on kind of the attitudes, the things under the surface, and so it feels like we're moving slower than we'd like to move. That's another thing. He might work slower than you'd like him to work. Yeah, he's not going to just steamroll our will. He wants to convince us. He wants to persuade us. He wants us to want to do the right thing. That's part of the key here. You know, Miles Stanford says, you know, when God goes to make a squash, it takes him a couple months. When he goes to make an oak tree, it takes several decades. And he says, what do you want to be, a squash or an oak? (laughs) Yeah, it's going to take some time. But uh, we can have great happiness and joy as God works in our lives, and we get to enjoy the results of that process. So, yeah, different people have different starting points, too. That's why it can actually be kind of harmful to compare yourself to other people. You need to worry about the work God's doing in your life. You've got a different starting point than that other person. Stop comparing yourself. And also, with their life, you need to try to zero in on what God's doing in their life and try to, if there's some way you can help, do that. But we need to look at things, you know, a little more from God's perspective. You know, some of us, we might find we're walking with God for a while, and all of a sudden he starts uncovering things we never knew were there. And so we've got these blind spots, and that can be kind of discouraging. But you just need to understand, God saw it the whole time, and maybe now it's finally time for him to work on it. And finally, God still requires our cooperation. He's never going to give up on you. But he's also not going to force you against your will if you're just determined to dig in. You know, he's got ways around that. He's got ways to let you really feel the fruit of that way of life. Sometimes that can be persuasive, let your need level rise. But there is a certain cooperation on our end. We need to be cooperative with God in this area. So you might be wondering, what are some of the ways that God wants to grow us? When God works in our life, what does that look like? 
Well, Paul gives a really cool prayer just a few verses later where he describes the kind of ways that God works in our lives until the day of Christ Jesus. He says in verse 9, In this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge. So more and more. We'll stop there. Love. When God's at work in your life, love will abound. That's right. And how could it not? He's the God of love. The scripture says God is love. It says the greatest commandment is to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. And so when God works in our lives, we're going to start to see it play out in our relationships. What might this look like? Well, you know, in my life, you know, I'm, I'm coming from a place where before I met Christ and even very early on as a Christian, I was super lonely. I had zero social skills. I was always like younger than everybody in my grade. And I just, I didn't have, I, I just never quite figured out how to navigate relating with actual humans. <laughs> I don't know if any of you can relate to this. You know, I, I came off to college here at Ohio State. You know, I had a roommate who I did not get along with, just started avoiding him. You know, I was kind of going out to a home church, but I was frankly afraid of the people there. I didn't know how to relate to them. Kept um, running away sooner and sooner after meetings because I just, I didn't know what to do when the whole group would just start talking to each other. And so I would say I had to study or something. And then after winter, my roommate failed out of college. And so I ended up with my own dorm room for like all of spring. And I thought, this was the dream. I don't have to be around people. And it turned out to be more of a nightmare, okay? You know, I got all the screen I wanted. I got all the video games I wanted. I got all the internet that I wanted. And I was getting unhappier and unhappier, emptier and emptier. God was letting me experience what a life without people was like. And I got so hungry for relationships. I started actually opening up to the people in my group. And I started just... It was such a breath of fresh air because I had some friends I would hang around with from some other, you know, dorm rooms. And it was just real caustic, uh, mean, relating, never felt safe. Um, It was not the kind of people I wanted to really open up to. But then I started hanging around with people from the home church. And I was just like, these people are so nice to me. They're so kind to me. They're so loving. I started to learn from them how to relate to people. I started wanting to be around them more and more. I, um, you know, I was no longer making excuses for why I couldn't make it, but I was clearing my schedule out so I could go and be around Christian fellowship because it just felt like finally I'm getting this nutrient I've been missing. You know, that, that summer I was like, I'd really like to move into a ministry house. And my parents were like, well, uh, we can't afford that. You can't afford that. Only if you could like get an internship after your freshman year which is super rare in engineering to get an internship after your freshman year. And I went to the placement office, and at first I prayed, God, I want to stay here this summer. Give me an internship so I can live in the ministry house. Nothing was turning up at the placement office, and here I was less than a month before school let out, and I saw this little thing hanging on the wall that said, hiring internships for computer science. So I called the guy up. I went downtown. They interviewed me, and they hired me right on the spot. God answered my prayer. You know, he created a desire for fellowship in me. And then he answered my prayer when I was asking, please, God, can I be around other Christians more? Can I be around people more? Can I go deeper in love relationships? And so it was, it was pretty cool how God worked with me pretty delicately. Couldn't have forced me into it, but made me want it. And then responded when I asked. 
So what might it look like? You're going to start making new friends and growing closer in your existing relationships. Love going in both directions, deeper and also broader out to meeting new people. You're going to start wanting to do that. You're going to start identifying your own self-protection strategies. That was one thing I had to do is I had to just learn what were the things I was doing that were pushing people away? And how can I not do those? How does that make people feel when I do that? Learning to take an interest in other people. Yeah, one of the big barriers is I would just sit there and people would ask me 20 questions and then they would just literally run out of things to ask me as I was just sitting there answering their interview. And then I'd be like, well, I guess I'm moving on to the next person. <laughs> At a certain point, I was like, what if I asked them a question? <laughs> it was a revolutionary idea. <laughs> and so I started doing that. And uh, all of a sudden, it opened up this whole new, whereas before I was like, boring people. And I'm like, wow, this is really interesting. Taking an interest in other people's life. You're going to want to devote more time to friendships. You're just going to want to. You're going to need to. I mean, it might put a dent in your, you know, all the shows you watch or whatever. But is that really that bad of a thing anyway? Are those really making you that happy? Beyond a very momentary stimulation? You'll start praying for people too. I mean, this is when you're really next level. Is when you actually have like a little list with people in your life on it. And, you know, a thing or two listed on each one. And you're going to God and you're praying for people each day. That's when you can really start to expect to see some, some next-level stuff in your relationships. Love abounding more and more. That's what I want. That's what I want for you guys, too. But it's not just enough to have love. Real knowledge, abounding more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. Yes, God works to grow us in love and truth. Love and truth. Yeah, Matthew 23, 37 What's the greatest commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Yeah, God wants us to grow our minds. The truth is what sets us free. And unfortunately, many Christians embrace an ignorant faith, and they, they make it sound like that's what God wants. I got news for you. It's not what God wants, and there's all kinds of problems with this. You know, the ignorant faith, I put faith in quotes because biblical faith is not ignorant. It's based on reality. They're suspicious of learning and knowledge, like have I learned something that's going to ruin my faith? No, learning something should strengthen my faith. These people are vulnerable to smooth talkers. If someone is a charismatic speaker, they can't evaluate what they're saying because the person just looks so good, feels so good, what they're saying. They get led astray in false teaching. They can't recognize falsehood. They can't analyze anything and tell whether it's right or wrong. They're also unpersuasive when trying to tell other people about Jesus because how are you going to persuade someone when you've never even taken the time to get persuaded yourself? These people are on a constant quest for the next experience. I've been here trying to ride to that next emotional high and our Christian life should be filled with emotional highs. should be filled with happiness. But that can't be all that we have because that experience is here one moment and it's gone the next but our knowledge and convincedness of the truth, that just grows deeper and stronger and wider the more we study and the more we learn about God and His Word. And so we need that depth. Are there any steps God might be calling on you to take in this area? I wonder. Maybe develop a habit of reading His Word? What about that? Is it time to finally get that going? or to get back on the habit you had going?
Is it time to start reading some good Christian books? Try to devote some time to doing that each day or each week. Is it time to take a class? You know, where you kind of have homework and assignments and a teacher to push you along as class and some spiritual topic. We offer plenty here in our church, and there's also plenty more you could find on the internet and stuff. Yeah, I wonder, wonder what ways we can cooperate with the, God, the work God's trying to do in our life. I wonder if uh, this, this passage tonight is part of the work that God is doing in your life to move you along in one of these areas. He says, it's so that you can approve the things that are excellent. Yeah, discernment, telling right from wrong. In order, he says, to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, he says, yeah, this is another way God is going to work in your life. Sincere and blameless, sincere, without hidden motives or pretense. Blameless, not stumbling. It's used of clear and like clear conscience. And we got to have both. You know, you think about the Pharisees, they were blameless, quote unquote, but not sincere. All this righteousness, but all this hypocrisy. That's not what we want to be, hypocrites. But if all I had was sincerity or being real, that could cause problems too. Some of us think, well, I just got to be honest because that's like the most important thing. Well, not really, because it can be, a, it can lead you to blast people in anger and selfishness under the disguise of just sharing how I feel. No, God wants you to become a person that has integrity right down to the core. You know, it's not perfect, but, um, you know, someone that is real, that is transparent, and that, um, you know, you can hold back when you need to. So you're not blasting people with your own, every selfish thought that you have, every critical thought you have. But this is the kind of thing God wants to do in your life. This is what he's working on. And finally, he says, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. He doesn't say fill yourself with the fruit of righteousness. No, having been filled by God, which comes through Jesus Christ, this fruit bearing, this is a common metaphor for spiritual growth. You know, we saw the fruits of the Spirit at the end of our Galatians study. And Jesus talks about this in, in John 15. He says, I am the vine and you're the branches. And if, you, if the branch can just stay plugged into the vine, you can bear much fruit. You know, one thing, you know, we might be able to produce like a peach-like substance in a factory through works. But, you know, that's nothing compared to a peach tree. Just sitting out there doing its thing, you know, just slowly growing those peaches. You never see a peach tree working. It's not like, yeah, look at that. That's a good one, finally. No, this is, a, this is a something, it's a, it's a natural, organic metaphor. It's something God does in our life as we stay plugged into him. And so it comes through Jesus Christ. And when it works, you know, when it works, works through self-effort, how could you not take the glory for those? How could you not become proud? bragging. But this, you're like, I can't believe a peach popped out. (laughs) You should have seen me before. This is a testament to the work of God in my life. This is a miracle. And you grow closer to him. You go closer to other people. You're more grateful. It's really a beautiful process. It's going to produce humility. So in conclusion, what have we seen? Well, I hope we've seen that God wants to do a good work in your life. And so one question is, will you let him begin that work? 
Maybe that's the starting point for you. Maybe that's the next step. You need to begin this, this relationship with Christ. He's offering it to you. You need to receive it. You need to trust him. Maybe you need to participate with him as he perfects it to stop resisting and to start cooperating. It's not a passive, effortless life. You know, we don't just turn on the grace bath and soak. Now, there, there are steps God will call you to take. He will lead you through it all. He does the work, and yet he calls you to take steps. But I think a real question for a lot of us is, will you believe that God can make something good out of you? That might be the real question we've got. And I'd like to conclude with a story related to this point right here. Will you believe that God can make something good out of you? It's about a block of marble in the 1400s, city of Florence. They commissioned an, arg- an artist named Agostino di Duccio, 1464, to sculpt what was going to be like the coolest statue in Florence, right? They spent a lot of money. They, they, they carved this huge chunk of marble out of the mountains of Italy, over 17 feet long, over 12,000 pound block of marble, somehow transported, I don't know, on mules or something, <laughs> to the city of Florence. And Augustino de Duccio, he worked for two years. He started kind of roughly blocking out the legs, the arms, and then he just quit. He just quit on them. This block of marble sits there for 10 years. 1476, they take another crack at it. They hire another artist named Antonio Rosalino who starts working on it and then he's just like, this thing's too difficult to work with. I quit too. And then another 26 years go by. This huge chunk of marble is just sitting out in the courtyard. It's sort of been partly worked on by two incompetent artists. It's out in the rain in the sunshine, in the wind, just lying there. It's toppled over on its side. In 1500, one of the cathedral workers took inventory and and wrote down about this, a piece of marble, (laughs) badly blocked out and lying on its side. That was all he could say about this chunk of marble. Out in the rain, exposed to the elements for 34 years, this marble was going nowhere. A year later, 1501, the Florentine city officials took that piece of marble and they somehow stuck it back up upright. And they called in this 26-year-old up-and-coming artist to see what he could do with it. And they said, you see this embarrassing monstrosity right here? This piece of marble that's been sitting there for 34 years. Other people have tried to do something with it, got nothing done with it. Do you think there's anything you could possibly do with this thing? It's supposed to be a statue of David. And so this 26-year-old artist named Michelangelo, he looked it over and he was like, I'll take the job. He didn't see what anybody else saw on this chunk of marble. And over the next two years, he carved and sculpted very carefully, painstakingly, working slower than a lot of people would have liked him to work. Honestly, um, part of what took him so long is he had to kind of work around and undo the damage that the other hacks had done (laughs) as they were working on this chunk of marble. And he didn't quit on it like the others did either. And 
The end result is what we know today as one of the greatest sculptures in the history of art. Michelangelo's David. So what's the point here? There was nothing special about the marble. It wasn't going to carve itself, right? There was nothing special about the other artists who probably did more harm than good in their work on this chunk of rock. Michelangelo did not get fed up and quit on this either, like all the other guys did. And there was not a line out the door to work on this. You know, part of what happened is he saw something that the others couldn't see. You know, this is the guy people would be like, how do you, how do, you do this? How do you carve like this? And he goes, well, you, it's pretty easy. You just chisel down until you get to the skin and then you stop. He saw something there. Another time somebody asked me, he goes, well, I, I just, I saw the angel in the marble and I just carved until I set it free. The, the, the master artist has a vision that others don't have when they look on at this, this lifeless piece of material. And that's what it's like with us and God. You know, there's nothing special about us. We're not going to fix ourselves up. Past attempts we've made, didn't get the job done, may have done more damage than good. He can work with that. He's not going to quit on us. He's not going to quit on us until... It's just the way he wants it. And even though there may not be a whole line of, you know, others wanting the job, he says, I'll take it. Because he sees the potential there. And what, what you really have to do is you have to take, you've got to take this lifeless, misshapen piece, and you've got to put it in the hands of the master artist. And he will do a good work in you, and he will continue to do a good work until he will not give up on you he will continue to work until the day of Christ Jesus. And so that's what I've got on Philippians 1, God's good work, and why Paul was so happy about it. Yeah, God, you're happy. You want us to be happy. You want to work in our lives. God, you're the one that, that began the good work, and you're the one that is just continually shaping this masterpiece that you're doing. And we know that we're thankful that one day you're going to reach your goal. You're going to bring it to full completion when Christ comes back. And we, we look forward to that day, Lord. We know that's going to come so soon. So soon we're going to be standing there before you. God, we pray that we would cooperate with you, respond to you. We pray you'd make us into people that are loving and that love the truth. People that are sincere and blameless and filled with the fruit only you can produce. God, and, and, and I, I just pray if there's people here that have never even begun that relationship with you, have never even let you begin that good work, I pray that they would consider doing that here tonight. Amen. Thanks for listening. This has been a Dwell Community Church production.